I don't know. I, I think it's, it's kind of it's kind of sad that Vince can't get any satisfaction. I mean, he smokes the right cigarettes, he wears white shirts, he drives his car, travels around the world, and he, he still can't get any satisfaction. I, I don't know if anybody else feels that way, but maybe we could pray. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask that you uh, would cause us to preach, us, your word, in Jesus' name, through the power of your spirit, Amen. You know, last week we began preaching through Solomon's words in the book of Ecclesiastes. In 1 Kings and 2 Chronicles, we learned that God asked, or Solomon asked God for wisdom, and God gave Solomon wisdom, and basically, he said he would give him all things with wisdom. St. Paul says that God has given us his son. Will he not also give us all things with him? Well, Solomon got wisdom, and at the end of Ecclesiastes chapter 1, we read this. And I applied my heart to know wisdom, and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Last week we preached that our experience with wisdom begins as sorrow. Wisdom calls to us from our sorrow. And Jesus, the Prince of Peace, said, your sorrow will turn into joy. We preached on that last week. We looked at this fascinating picture and we made a rather astounding observation. This is what we observed, what we noted. The New Testament clearly states that Jesus is the wisdom of God. And Jesus clearly taught that God is the good. And the spirit of God is the ruach, the wind of God. Uh, This is the picture we looked at. This is a picture from the 15th century titled The Mystery of the Fall and the Redemption of Man. All of space and time swirls around Jesus on a tree that we sometimes call a cross. And then all of space and time passes through Jesus like water swirling through a drain. And on the other side of that drain is the eternally new creation united under one head as the body of Christ. A friend of mine actually had an amazing vision of that during worship about uh, 10 years ago. And yet I think it's always been the testimony of Scripture, especially for the last 2,000 years, although in recent years we haven't really believed it. In recent years, for the last several hundred years actually, the church has suffered from bad science. Bad science which taught that space and time are constant and meaning is relative, like a vapor that vanishes vanity. But now it's become clear that space and time are relative and meaning, logos, you can call it wisdom, is not. So get the picture? With wisdom, God created the heavens and the earth. That includes all of space and time and you. Well, as we said last time, we find wisdom or wisdom finds us on a tree in a garden. 
Wisdom begins as fear and sorrow, and wisdom calls to us from our sorrow and calls to us in our sorrow. In chapter two of Ecclesiastes, Solomon describes how this happens. Chapter two, verse one, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. Literally, Solomon says, come, let me test you with joy and see the good. See the good carries the force of the verb test. And so basically, Solomon is saying this, let's take the knowledge of the good and see if it makes us good. And that should sound vaguely familiar to you, children of Adam. It's like Solomon says, let's bite that sandwich and then judge the good. It's like Solomon takes knowledge of the good and starts a journey with wisdom. It's like Solomon is walking through life or climbing a ladder, if you will, in order to know the good, in in order uh, to, to know God. Verse two, I said of laughter, so he ate the sandwich and then he tries laughter. I said of laughter, it's mad and of pleasure, what use is it? He's asking, what is the good good for? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom. Is that incredible? Wisdom hasn't left him. It's like wisdom has gone on this journey with Solomon and is now asking Solomon, saying to Solomon, hey Solomon, that was fun. But now you have a hangover. What does that teach you, Solomon? What'd you learn? Verse three, I searched with my wisdom how to cheer my body with wine my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees, like he's making the Garden of Eden. I made myself pools from which to water the forests of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold, silver and gold and the treasures of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. Amen. Hallelujah. According to scripture, (laughs) Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Right. If he did not get a headache from the wine... I bet he got a headache from the women. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. That would include King David and Melchizedek. Also my wisdom remained with me and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. Genesis three verse six reads like this. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes. It's it's like Solomon, she saw the good, she took the good, and she ate the good. Whatever my eyes desired, writes Solomon, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. You know, God is not against pleasure. God is not against 
burritos and sandwiches and bread and wine. God is not against nice houses and cars. He's not against sex. God is not against pleasure. In fact, you are his pleasure. You are his joy, the joy set before him. You're his joy. Did you know that that word pleasure here in Ecclesiastes is also translated joy? And joy is a gift of the Spirit. No, it's, it's, it's a fruit of the Spirit. The wind that Solomon is striving after. Well, anyway, Solomon takes some good and he experiences some pleasure, but then it's like the pleasure dies, as if he picks the fruit and the fruit dies. What, what happened? Verse 11, then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. He enjoys the good, and then he considers the good to be the work of his own hands, and it's like the good dies evaporates vanity as we mentioned last time in scripture idols are referred to as the vanity of vanities like the breath of the breaths idols are good things that we make into bad things like calves for instance it's a good thing a calf for a farmer calves or cows or 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 sex, and a man makes an idol with his own hands, like a golden calf, and then worships the idol as if the idol were his creator. So he considers himself to be the creator of his own creator. That's vanity. So idols are blessings, like calves, that become curses because we turn them into curses. We make good things into idols and everything dies. It's not something that only the ancients did. We do it all the time. When I was a boy, I remember thinking to myself, if I only had a microscope, I'd be happy. And then I got a microscope. And I looked through the microscope at hair and fingernails. I looked and 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 I looked. And then I remember thinking, you know, if only I had an electric race car set. I'd be happy. Then I'd be complete. Then I'd be finished. And then I got an electric race car set. And I got bored. I thought to myself, I can't get no satisfaction. I try and I try and I try and I can't get no satisfaction. And then I thought, if only I could get my driver's license. You know, if only I had a driver's license. Oh, that would, like, make everything new. And so I got a driver's license. And I drove, and I drove, and I drove, and I drove, and I drove. And driving got old. It got old. And then I thought to myself, if only I had a girlfriend. Yeah, I better not continue in that train of thought. But you, under, you understand. I saw that girls were a delight to the eye, and I thought, I bet they're good for food. I should take one and consume one. But when we make idols, we kill the idols, and in that way, we kill ourselves. When we make idols, we're really idolizing ourselves. We're trying to use the good to make ourselves in the image of 
God, in the image of the good, and everything dies, including the idol. It's just like catching wind in a jar. It was wind, and now it's only vapor in a jar. Solomon writes, Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. And so I turned. And now Solomon, Solomon is going to take a new tack. He's going to try a different strategy, as if he's entering a new stage in his quest to comprehend the good. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. That sentence is a bit confusing, but along with some translators, I think it means, or commentators, I think it means something like this. I think Solomon's saying, I'm the king. (laughs) It is good to be the king. Who else could run an experiment like this? 700 wives, 300 concubines, 1,000 women's, and I got wisdom. I need to dissect the wisdom and turn it into virtues and values and proverbs. I need to dissect the wisdom uh, and turn it into some laws. You know, you know that I could put in a book, you could call it the knowledge of good and evil and the people that come after me, they could use that knowledge of good and evil in order to make themselves good in the image of God. Now, the law has some value, doesn't it? But it doesn't decrease the trespass. Like Paul says, it actually increases the trespass. Think about it. People who try to live by the law think the good is managing their desire for the bad with what? Bad desire. So they think stuff like this, they tell themselves stuff like this. I'll just renounce my lust for gold and then God will reward me with streets of gold. I'll just renounce my lust for women and God will reward me with 70 virgins. I'll just renounce my lust for vengeance and love my enemies and God will reward me by torturing my enemies forever without end. I'll just renounce my pride and then I can be forever proud that I renounced my pride. I'll just really, 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 really will to renounce my own will and God will reward my will. You know, if you hear that you should love your enemies... It just reveals that you don't love your enemies. And there's some value in that. But as long as love is a law, for me, it reveals that love is not my nature. Verse 12, so I turned and considered wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than darkness. The light is exposing something. It's shining on something. The wise person has his eye in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet, and yet, I perceive that the same event happens to them all. And then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool is also going to happen to me. Why then have I been so very wise 
Why? As you know, I've taught that all must pass through judgment, which means all must lose their lives for Christ's sake and the gospel and then find them, which means all, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess the glory of God, which means the same event, salvation by grace through faith, will happen to all. And sometimes when I say that to people, they say, well then why should I be good? Which clearly reveals that they don't love the good, want to be good, or even trust the good. They have only been taking knowledge of the good to make themselves good, which means they are, are just not good. And the degree to which you are not good is the degree to which I, I, I think you, you, you're not saved because it's the degree to which you still walk in dar darkness, which is the degree to which the wrath of God remains on you for you still believe the lie of the devil that you are your own savior, your own creator, your own idol. See, when people ask why be good, they confess that they don't want the good, and that's not good. So they're not good. They have evil hearts, but pretend that they're, they're good. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten, how the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and striving after wind. And now let me remind you that the wind here is ruach, spirit. And the good is God. And his word is wisdom, our Lord Jesus. So Solomon couldn't use these words, but I think this is what he's saying. I hated my life because I saw that all of man's toil is striving to capture the wind. All of man's toil is taking knowledge of the good to make himself the good. All of man's toil is using wisdom, using wisdom to justify himself. All of man's toil is the crucifixion of the Christ on a tree in a garden. All of man's toil is sin. Genesis 3. The woman sees that the fruit is good for food and takes it. That's like Solomon's first stage. Then she sees that it's desired to make one wise and takes it. That's like Solomon's second stage. She took the life of wisdom to make herself in the image of God. You see, I think we are all that woman. And this is humanity's toil under the sun. Taking the life of wisdom, which makes us hate wisdom and hate our own lives. So I hated life, writes Solomon, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after wind. I hated all my toil, or the fruit of my toil, in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who'll come after me, and who knows whether he's wise or an idiot. 
Yet he will be master of all which I toiled and used my, for all which I toiled and used my, used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. Using my wisdom, using my wisdom, is, let me rephrase. Using my Jesus to make myself God and capture his spirit is vanity. It's pride. Next verse. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair. Over all the toil of my labor under the sun. For sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This toiling is vanity and a great evil. You know, in the last chapter, remember Solomon said it is an evil business that God has given to the, to the sons of Adam to be busy with. Crucifying Christ is the evil business. This Toiling is vanity and a great evil. What is man for all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. And now, in the next verse, it's like Solomon enters the third stage. And, and for the first time, he mentions God. He has climbed the ladder, and now he tells us the very, very best. Are you ready? Verse 24. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Literally, eat and drink and see good in his toil. Not make good with his toil, see good in his toil. Eat and drink and see good in his toil. This is the very best. Todd, enjoy your sandwich. Period. Now remember, Solomon is the dude with 700 wives, 300 concubines, palaces, cars, uh, all these riches and great wisdom like none before or after. And according to Solomon, this is the very best. And isn't that kind of weird? I mean, it's not something that you have to be a king in order to achieve. You don't have to be a king in order to achieve it. It's not at the top of the ladder, but back where we started, you know, like way down here at the bottom of the ladder. Anybody can eat a sandwich. Enjoy your sandwich and your Diet Coke. The very best. I mean, that's what he did, remember, way back. What's the difference? What has Solomon gained in all his toil? Verse 24, there is nothing better for an Adam than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to one who pleases him, God has given, it's not taken, it's given, wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting cars, houses, concubines, only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. What follows, I think, is perhaps the most beautiful, lovely, encouraging chapter in all of Scripture. But for now, let's just note, there is a time for the evil business. And it reveals God's business. 
which is making everything beautiful in his time. So what has Solomon gained with all his toil under the sun? How about wisdom in his heart? I think it's called faith. Well, as I've chewed on Ecclesiastes over and over again, I keep getting reminded of Soren Kierkegaard, or as the people in the know say, Soren Kierkegaard. That's how the Dutch say it. But anyway, Kierkegaard was a Danish philosopher who wrote at the end of the 19th century. He never published a book while he was alive, and yet he is considered by many to be the greatest philosopher of the 20th century, and maybe he even predicted the end of the modern era. Kierkegaard was a passionate uh, Christian, deeply disturbed by the passionless Protestant Christianity of the Germanic people in Northern Europe during his day. My dad loved Kierkegaard. Karl Barth loved Kierkegaard. While I was at CU, I studied Kierkegaard in philosophy classes. Uh, several years ago, I went to Regent Seminary in Canada, Canada and took a whole course on uh, Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard proposed that there are three stages along life's way. First, the aesthetic stage. Second, the ethical stage. And third, what he calls the religious stage. But he doesn't mean religious the way we usually mean religious, human religion. He means true religion, faith. Faith. Working through love, faith. He would argue that we may traffic in all three stages at once and that we could like ascend to one and fall back into another. But the last stage is what it means to be saved, according to Kierkegaard. The first two stages are characterized by sorrow. The aesthetic stage ends in boredom. The ethical stage ends in despair despair. In the uh, aesthetic stage, right here, in the, in the aesthetic stage, a, a person seeks salvation through pleasure. Uh, in other words, they seek the good and then they consume the good. They're consumers of the good in the aesthetic stage. I think the gospel refers to these folks as tax collectors and sinners, uh, consuming money and sex. But, but a person in the aesthetic phase may desire goods that are far more refined than just money and sex. They may live for the symphony, fine art museums, great theology and liturgy. They're consumers, though. They're consumers and spectators, so they see the good, consume the good, but won't commit themselves to the good. The aesthetic person believes that wisdom is consuming the good to make yourself good. Like a cannibal consumes a victim to take on the traits of that victim. The aesthetic stage ends in boredom for when one consumes the good, one kills the good and it's no longer good. It's boring. Once you trap the wind in a jar, it's like no longer the wind. Just vapor in your jar. A person gets trapped in the aesthetic stage when they won't face the sorrow of their own boredom. And so they keep sucking the life out of drinks and concubines and churches with ever-diminishing returns because the life has died. Kierkegaard wouldn't be at all surprised at the suicide rate in a wealthy consumer society like the United States of America. 
The second stage is the ethical stage. A person in the, in the ethical stage seeks salvation through laws and willpower, that is ethics and duty. They try to save themselves by taking wisdom and using the wisdom in order to make themselves good, and yet they still don't know the good. They only know about the good. They don't know wisdom. They only have knowledge of good and evil. They still don't know the wind. They think it's only vapor in their jar. I think the Gospels refers to folks like these as the scribes and Pharisees. The scribes and Pharisees loved wisdom that they had reduced to laws in their book. But when wisdom took on flesh and stood in front of them face to face, they mocked him, reviled him, and took his life on a tree in a garden, and everything died. Even the sun went black. And in my experience, that's what most people think Christianity is. And what the pastor's job is. Pastor, give me some knowledge of love so I can make myself love. So I can get into the kingdom of love, walk those streets of gold and eat that roast wine, drink that red wine while watching my enemies torture forever in the valley of Gehenna by God who is love. Pastor, give me some of that knowledge of of love. Well, true knowledge of love burns like fire and leads a person to despair. For the person realizes that they don't love love and they can't make themselves love love. In fact, with their every desire to conquer love, they realize they have already crucified love. You cannot make yourself good when your every effort is the evil business. Trapping wind in a jar, taking the life of the good on a tree, crucifying wisdom in a garden. People get trapped in despair when they refuse to face their despair. And so they refuse to listen, call into them, refuse to listen to wisdom, call into them in in the midst of their despair. Lose your life and find it. In his book, Falling Upward, Father Richard Rohr writes this, in our work with men, we have found that in many men, this inability or refusal to feel their deep sadness takes the form of aimless anger. You know, aimless anger turns into violence. And with violence, we turn people into things. We turn subjects into objects. Kierkegaard taught that the first two stages were characterized by objective knowledge as opposed to subjective knowledge. To seek objective knowledge is to assume that the thing you want to know is an object. It's to assume that the thing you want to know is something that can be comprehended by you. Uh, That is something less than you. Like catching wind in a jar. Or the word in a book. Or trying to nail the good to, to a tree. 
It's the way science knows about stuff. And that's great if the stuff is stuff. It's the way science knows about things, and that's great if the things are objects. You know, many years ago, I was sitting in this plane flying somewhere over Nevada, and the silence was broken by the sound of the pilot over the intercom. He spoke with great, great wonder and reverence and awe. He said, oh, I need to tell you that right below us, right below us, right now is Mount Wheeler, the site of the world's oldest living thing, Prometheus, a bristlecone pine, 4,862 years old. And then he paused, his tone changed, and he said, well, it was the oldest living thing. They cut it down in order to count its rings. So they took a tree of life and turned it into a tree of knowledge about life, but no longer living. Let's say you wanted to know a girl How could you know that girl? Well, you could cut her down and count her rings. I mean, you could take her and you could dissect her. You could learn all about her, her kidneys, her heart, or her physical, her organs, her pancreas, but you wouldn't know her because she'd be dead. That's objective knowledge. In other words, you could rape her as an object. Or... You could romance her in the hopes that she might want to know you. And in knowing you, you would know her. Maybe she'd even form a covenant with you and commune with you in the sanctuary of that covenant, producing the fruit of life. I'm talking babies. (laughs) That's subjective knowledge. Obtaining objective knowledge is like science It looks like science and and feels like rape. Obtaining subjective knowledge looks like romance or maybe worship and feels like ecstasy. The first two stages, in the first two stages, in the first two stages Kierkegaard is describing, in the first two stages, if the good isn't dead, we'll kill it in order to know it. And when we see it, our boredom will turn to absolute despair. And then according to Kierkegaard, we're ready for the third stage. I found a video online that explains it like this. So Kierkegaard thought that there were three stages to life. And he believed in this idea. And I thought that it's kind of like a ladder where at the bottom of the ladder, you're in the aesthetic stage. In the middle, you're in the ethical, and at the very top, you're in the religious stage. And the whole point of life was to go up this ladder. So now we meet Bob. Bob is in the aesthetic stage of the the ladder, and his life is all about happiness and pleasure. So naturally, Bob parties a lot. He dances, and he doesn't really care about his life that much. It's all about him and satisfying his needs. But one day, Bob isn't happy anymore. He's not satisfied with the happiness and pleasure he's getting. So, he tries to find a solution. Maybe he thinks he should get a job. Maybe that'll solve his issues. He'll become a committed person. So, Bob gets a job, and he starts a family. 
And with this, Bob enters the ethical stage, which is all about commitment. Commitment to oneself, to your family, to the job, to the community. And he's in the middle of the ladder now. So next, Bob thinks to himself again, what is the purpose of my life? And he goes towards God. By doing this, he is sacrificing his happiness to devote himself fully to God. And with that, he enters the religious stage. And now Bob has reached the top of the ladder and he will continue to be in that stage until he dies. That's what most people think religion is. That's what she thought Kierkegaard said. But that is absolutely not what he said. She said Bob will be in that stage until he dies. I think Kierkegaard would say until Bob dies to himself, he cannot enter that stage. She said that she pictured it as climbing a ladder. But entering Kierkegaard's third stage is not like climbing a ladder. It's more like falling off a ladder. Better it's like realizing that the whole time you were climbing the ladder, you were going exactly the opposite direction, the wrong direction. Better it's no longer being able to climb the ladder, for God has utterly obliterated the ladder and obliterated you. The third stage is not something you can do. It's something wisdom does to you. Listen to Kierkegaard. What is a human being after all? And what is his power? What is the highest he is able to will? Well, we do not want to defraud the highest of its price, but we cannot conceal the fact that the highest is realized only when a person is fully convinced that he himself is capable of nothing. Nothing at all. Someone who is conscious that he is capable of nothing has every day, listen to this, someone who is conscious that he is capable of nothing has every day and every moment the precious opportunity to experience that God lives. That's Easter. If he does not experience it often enough, he knows very well why that is. It is because his understanding is faulty and he believes that he himself is, after all, capable of something. <laughs> and you might say to yourself, you might say, well, does that mean I try to do nothing? No! Absolutely not! Unless you try to do something, your heart will never know that you are capable of nothing! And until you believe that you are capable of nothing, you cannot believe in the something. And what is that something? Grace. Grace is the wisdom of God that is the logic of love in flesh, Jesus. You can't know Jesus until you know that you are known by Jesus and you have done nothing to deserve it. You can crucify Jesus, which is the evil business. But you can't know Jesus until you know that you are known by Jesus. And that's not your business. That's God's business. That's Easter. In the garden of your heart, it's called faith.
Listen to Kierkegaard's student, Karl Barth. What is pleasing to God comes into being when all human righteousness is gone, irretrievably gone. When men are uncertain and lost, when they have abandoned all ethical and religious illusions, when they have renounced every hope in this world and in this heaven. That thing that is pleasing to God that comes into being is faith by grace. Kierkegaard's model of, of the third stage was the father, the, faith, the father of the faith, Abraham. His faith was counted as righteousness. You know why? Because it is righteousness. God doesn't doctor the books. His faith was counted as righteousness. And it was counted as righteousness on Mount Moriah, where Solomon would build the temple on a rock called the foundation stone for the Jews believed that on that rock God had created Adam in the garden of Eden interesting but anyway toward the end of Abraham's life God told Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac on Mount Moriah on a pile of wood that's dead tree I don't believe that command was merely a relic of ancient society I don't believe God was merely accommodating himself to the language of Abraham's day in which people sacrifice children to vain idols like we sacrifice our children to a vain idol called our ego. I think that word from God was spoken by God to obliterate the ladder upon which Abraham was standing. You see, Isaac was God's promised blessing. Abraham had literally spent like his entire life climbing the ladder for Isaac. For old Abraham, Isaac was everything he considered good. And all his knowledge of the good told him that whatever happened, he must save Isaac. To sacrifice Isaac was to sacrifice himself and his knowledge of the good, but what else could he do? It was clear that God had created Isaac and God had led him to this horrible mountain. His wisdom failed, but according to Kierkegaard, he encountered another wisdom, God's wisdom, in the garden of his heart. And in that place of utter despair, he took a leap called faith. You see, faith is not passive. You can't work faith, but believe me, faith will work you. Faith is like the death and resurrection of wisdom within you, and that works you. In faith, Abraham lifted the knife, and at that point, God stopped him and supplied a ram. Now, that's a full-grown lamb, and God told Abraham to sacrifice that lamb. And, 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 and what did Abraham gain from all of his toil under the sun? He gained knowledge of the good. But he didn't just learn knowledge of the good, he came to know the good because the good had come to meet Abraham on Mount Moriah. See, it's not the kind of knowledge that you can just like learn in a book. It's given to you at a tree in an ancient garden on Mount Moriah. Isaac was Abraham's life. On Mount Moriah, Abraham lost his life and found it. Every time you're forced to sacrifice the good or your knowledge of the good, 
That is every time you suffer and you don't know why. Because I mean, we do believe that God is sovereign, right? And he's the one that numbers our days. And so if you lose something, that happens under his sovereign command. Every time you're forced to sacrifice the good or your knowledge of the good, that is every time you suffer and you don't know why, you see, I think God is fixing to show you something on Mount Moriah. It was 2,000 years later that Jesus, the promised blessing, the only begotten Son of God, rode up Mount Moriah on a donkey. <laughs> Just like Abraham and Isaac rode up that very same mountain on a donkey 2,000 years before. Of course, it was no longer called Moriah. Now it was called the Temple Mount or Mount Zion or maybe just Calvary. To his followers, Jesus was everything that they knew to be good. And the fact that he would willingly walk up that mountain violated everything that they understood, uh, that they knew, their, their knowledge of the good and how to make the, the world good. So at a tree called the cross and a garden called Calvary, they were forced to surrender the good and their knowledge of the good. And at a tree called the cross in a garden called Calvary, the scribes and the Pharisees took the life of the good according to their knowledge of the good. And Jesus said, no one takes my life. No one takes my life. I give my life. Jesus is the Father's life, freely given for all of us tax collectors and sinners, all of us scribes and Pharisees. So at a tree called the cross in a garden called Calvary, God gave his life for the sins of the world. And in this, in this is, is love. And Jesus is the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. We just haven't seen it. From the foundation of the world, we try to take his life. But in truth, we cannot take his life. For God has already given his life. We try to take his life, but God forgives his life in a garden on a tree. And what do we gain from all of our toil under the sun? Knowledge. That our taking is evil. And God's giving is good. But more than just knowledge of the good, we know the good because the good has come to know us on a tree in the garden of our heart. He is life. But you see, at the cross, there is this great reversal. At the cross, we see that we strive after the wind, but the wind has always been striving after us. At the cross, we realize that we can't make ourselves good and in joy, uh, well, we realize that in despair, don't we? In despair, but in joy, we realize that God, uh, the good, has made us good by giving us himself because he is uh, the good. He's the good, and that's wisdom rising from the dead in the garden of your heart. We are his body. And so God's will becomes our will. Abraham, I think, glimpsed that on Mount Moriah. I think Solomon glimpsed that as he worshiped in the temple. Jesus was crucified on a tree in a garden on Mount Moriah, and yet we each meet him in the garden of our own heart by faith and as faith. And did you notice this? That Solomon seemed to experience that third stage at the bottom of the ladder. I mean, he experienced heaven... Not, not, at the, not at the top of the ladder, but he experienced heaven at the, at the bottom of the ladder. 
It wasn't upon constructing a wonderful, marvelous, and glorious self that he knew joy. It was after he lost himself that he was surprised by joy. Perhaps joy had, had been there all along. Now he knows, number one, he doesn't own the good. Number two, he hasn't earned the good. He can only receive the good. And so he wrote, there is nothing better for a person than that he should enjoy his sandwich, eat and drink, and see good in all his toil. This also, this again, is from the hand of God. In his heart, Solomon sees that the good is absolute gift. Everything is grace. Those new eyes in his new heart, I think those eyes are called faith. In his book, Fear and Trembling, after Kierkegaard describes Abraham, he describes this man he calls the knight of faith. But he doesn't look weird like Solomon or Abraham. He looks like any other man. He doesn't have palaces or a thousand women, and he hasn't written any proverbs. He experiences what every other man experiences, and yet he experiences everything in an extraordinary way. He eats and drinks and sees good In all his toil, Kierkegaard writes this, he takes delight in everything. And whenever one sees him, the night of faith, taking part in a particular pleasure, well, he does it with a persistence which is the mark of the earthly man whose soul is absorbed in such things. He tends to his work. He takes a holiday on Sunday. He goes to church. If one did not know him, it would be impossible to distinguish him from the rest of the congregation for his healthy and vigorous hymn singing proves at the most that he has a good chest. He enjoys everything he sees. To see him eat would be the envy of the elite and an inspiration to the common man for his appetite is keener than that of of Esau's. There's an aesthetic person. And yet he is no genius. He's not a genius. With infinite resignation, he has drained the cup of life's profound sadness. He knows the bliss of the infinite. He senses the pain of renouncing everything, the dearest things he possesses in the world. And yet... He has this sense of security in enjoying it. As though the finite life were the surest thing of all, and yet, and yet, and yet, the whole earthly form he exhibits is a new creation. Why? Because he has faith in love. And this is how God makes faith. On the night wisdom was betrayed by all of us, he took bread and he said, this is my body given to you. Take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper and having given thanks, he said, this cup is the covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. God said that he would give Solomon wisdom. And with wisdom, all things. St. Paul said, God has given you his son. Will he not also with his son give you all things? You see, the death of Jesus on the tree in the garden and his resurrection in the same garden is not simply the way that God takes care of theological issues. It's not simply the way that God takes care of of your sin that you committed last week or or whatever. It's, It's not just that. It's the way God gives us all things and through all things gives us himself. He is the good. As Paul says, all things are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. So so God is saying, look, I give you this bread. Do you get it? 
I give you this bread. And it means I love you. I know you worked the vineyard. I, I, know, you, I know you toiled. I know you sweated. But, but even that was a gift. Do you, do you understand? I give you this cup. I give you this wine. And it means I love you. I gave you every sandwich you ever ate. <laughs> and they all meant I love you. That heartbeat in your chest, I give it to you. And it means I love you. I give you the sun, and it means I love you. I give you the moon, and it means I love you. I give you the trees, and it means I love you. I give you the forest, and it means I love you. I give you myself, and it all means I am love, and I love you. Do you see it? No, if you ask, how do I apply this? <laughs> Listen! You don't apply this. This applies you. This is wisdom. How great thou art, how great thou art, and sings my soul, I sing not to me. How great thou art, how great thou art. Sings my soul, my Savior God to me. How great thou art, how great thou art. You know, sometimes I feel, and I did this last night, I feel like I need to apologize for yelling during the sermon. But I'm, I'm only yelling because I'm preaching to myself. Seriously. I mean, I've been feeling convicted for quite a while now by God that I just don't enjoy stuff. That my soul's not, not singing. I think if Kierkegaard were here, he'd say, Peter, that's because you think that you're capable of something. And that's stressing you out. But don't let that knowledge stress you out. Because, you see, while I was alive, I told everybody I'd never entered the third stage. I mean, I glimpsed the third stage. It was like I had a mustard seed of faith. So don't worry. Peter, um, you're afraid of being a failure, but I have good news for you. <laughs> you're already a failure, and, <laughs> and God loves you. I think that's what Kierkegaard would say. If Jesus were here, I think he'd say something like this. Peter... The kingdom of heaven is at hand. At the bottom of the ladder, it's at hand. But how are you going to enjoy it if you won't even enjoy a sandwich? Because you know what you do? You bite the sandwich. You think it's good. You're like, oh, this is good. And then you worry about whether or not you're going to get another sandwich. And so you no longer taste the sandwich. You don't taste the sandwich because you're afflicted with fear. And one day, you may not taste the sandwich. One day, you will die. One day, I'll take all the sandwiches away. But Peter, that's to show you that every sandwich is a gift. And then I give everything back. Uh, Peter, you, you don't taste the sandwich because you think to yourself, I don't deserve this sandwich. 
And I bet God might take it away because of what I did the other night and the way I, you know, and he knows about me. And, and, and Peter, you, you, think, you think somehow that you deserve this sandwich so you don't taste the sandwich. You see, if you think that way, the kingdom of heaven will just burn you like fire. And oh yeah, Peter, one more thing. You know the good in your toil? That's me. You're giving birth to me. And when you see that, you'll be happy. And you will find good in your toil. Peter, in my name, believe the gospel. Amen. So may you believe the gospel. Oh, and I think he might also say this. He said, you want a practical application point, Peter? Okay, fine. Next time you have a sandwich, just say thank you. And mean it. Amen. Have a great day.